like they started adding new features over features over features over features. Like what? I, I don't know. I, well, exactly. Look like, on the web. No, but if you look the, on the no, website, but, but what, I'm, like, what, I, what I'm saying is that it doesn't feel like they added anything. I like, know, but if you look it, at the website, it feels like they added a ton. No, it doesn't. <laughs> if you can, if you can name me a feature that they added that that is like substantial, then yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to episode six. We're going to be talking about Framer, my learning curve using Framer to build our own site, which should be live by the time you're listening to this podcast. So make sure to go and have a look. Our friendly competition is about to kick off where we put Mitch against myself and you get to be the judge of who's better at design, copywriting, and so on. Friendly competition, but hey, it's a competition we all want to win. We're going to be discussing interview skills, techniques. Mitch is going to walk us through his process and procedures where he puts psychology into the mix, personality into the mix. You don't want to miss this part because I think it's going to help you differentiate yourself from others. We talk about design challenges and how companies often ask design challenges. I'm not a fan of this. Mitch has his perspective on this. You don't want to miss this. Go have a look. See you on the other side. Just want to start off by saying, I just got a new mic. Hopefully it sounds That's way right. Better. That's right? right. The mic's the mic, better. Way better. Next. So, so let me get this straight. So now you have your mic and yeah. your Opal camera. Yeah. And then I guess you have to develop the background a little bit in the lighting. And then I have you'll to be figure out set. the lighting because the office is right beside a huge window. I can't hide that. So it's something I have to figure out. But I think we can, I'll figure out what lighting. Once I get it up to balance the the light, I'll have the background set up very soon. Slow step, not moving at, the, at your pace <laughs> with this, but you know what? <laughs> Me being in this Mexican country, it, it just makes it a bit harder. So one thing at a time, we'll get there. But Mike is there first step to anything. Cool. Yeah, you know, for me, I'm very much a person who likes to just get it done, rip the bandaid off. And I don't, I don't like waiting. I hate, I, I guess I'm becoming more and more impatient, which is, I guess, I to our advantage, something that we're, I'm using at least for our, you know, primitives initiative. Yep. So part of that initiative, why don't we start talking about a couple of things we're going to be going over? Yep. First thing is this framework competition that we kind of want to discuss, framework contest, however you want to frame it. Haha. <laughs> See framer. that joke I threw in there? Yeah. So no for those who don't know, framer is a tool that we yep. use to design websites. And it's a really cool drag and drop, WYSIWYG, GUI tool. We really enjoy using it. Pascal, why don't you talk about a little bit about your experience using it? Because you've been setting up our primitives, our learnprimitives.com website mm-hmm. that by the time this episode airs, that should probably be up. Yeah, it's it's been a fun, interesting ride. They spent the last two, two and a half weeks playing with the framer. And I think it's, it's interesting. It, it's, the learning curve is somewhat easy, I would say. I'm still figuring out. There's a bunch of things I want to be, I want to be do, be able to do. But I can't figure it out. Like I don't know how to do it. <laughs> and there's, I, there's not that many tutorials out there yet. There are a lot of tutorials on the basic foundational stuff with it. But if you want to do a bit more crazier animations or scroll elements, they're not always there. So I know a lot of people are very strong with Framer. They just haven't had a chance, obviously, to do all those tutorials, but it's a very fun tool. Once you get the hang of it, it's it's pretty cool. And I think it, it's going to start to simplify a lot of the, for a lot of the people that want to create their own site, don't, don't want to code, 
don't want to do many of those things. I think it's going to simplify a lot of these things and it, it allows people to just concentrate and not have to worry about many different things. And it's, it's pretty customizable and pretty flexible. So that's, that's cool. And there's a lot of people that did pretty amazing sites with it. So we'll see, we'll get ours up there and then we'll launch V2 after that. Awesome. Well, thanks again for actually setting that up because I know it's a pretty big endeavor to learn a new tool and then actually publish something that hopefully will start making us money, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do talk about what we're doing in public, building in public, and we're trying to soon launch uh, this website that hosts some of our courses that we're going to be launching soon. You'll yep. be able to purchase the course ahead of time for a lower price. And then, you know, by the time it actually launches, then the price will go up. So be sure to get in soon. And that first course that we're teaching is about creating portfolios. And of course, we're doing mm-hmm. a live cohort for free, mm-hmm. but there's limited seats to that. And then once we finish that, we'll take what we learn from that and then be able to apply that to this course yeah. that you can purchase on demand and listen and watch whenever you want from wherever you want. And there's another reason that uh, framers use, right, is for this contest thing that we want to do. That's right. So this contest that we're talking about, we mentioned it in a previous episode, but just to recap, Pascal and I are debating who's the better web design, right? That's not the real reason. I mean, that's like, that's like legit the real reason, but the real reason we tell people is that we want to help build this brand primitives. And we, we think that one really cool thing we can do to help get some of of the audience eyes on us is by creating this a little bit tension, building startups, one startup every week. So this initiative, we're calling it one startup one week. I just bought the domain. So you can go to that one startup one week.com. And you'll be able to see side-by-side comparisons of ideas that Pascal and I are working on and who would actually execute that idea for a startup better. So the idea of this entire concept is each of us, Pascal and I, are going to be competing for one week at a time, creating a landing page for a startup idea. And you'll be able to vote who created the better website for each one. There's a grading scale that we have that we're going to be using based on our previous kind of framework, which would be including presentation, story, and personality, and then whatever else kind of comes in with that. And you get to vote, and and maybe if you guys like it enough, we'll actually build those things. So just kind of testing the waters there. So it's kind of like a multi-part thing. We get to learn how to use Framer and be able to even create templates for, for all of you. So you can create your own websites. We have fun doing it, getting a new skill. But also we can even use this as something we want to teach in the future or even help use for other things that we're working on that we can't quite say just yet. But there's a lot of fun things coming with this whole framer initiative that we're working on. So onestartuponeweek.com is where you can find more information about all of this. It's also a great way to to build in public, right? And not Mm -hmm. to be shy to share. I think it's... Everybody's learning, and especially with this software, it's okay to share and learn progress as we move forward. And hopefully it's going to spice up the creativity and challenge and all this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you and I were so... One thing that I think we lack is like marketing skills because we're so in-depth with the product. Like, So for those who don't, don't actually know by not doing it, if you're 
usually working on an interface for a product, like active daily use of a product, onboarding, whatever, you're not necessarily focused on how to present that to others and communicate that to others in a marketing essence. And those things, marketing and product, kind of are not opposites, but they don't really sit in the same playing field, especially when you're designing. So for us, this would be kind of a great way to kind of oil oil the wheels a little bit mm-hmm. and get that part of our skill sets up and going and, and hopefully be able to even help others design their landing pages and stuff. So we have some courses we have in, in, in the works, potentially, if, if those who are listening want to hear more about that eventually. Course on maybe creating a great landing page, a course on using no-code tools, and so forth. And I'm experimenting not just with Framer as well, Pascal, I forgot to tell you, I'm working on other tools just to kind of see what's out there. But we'll review those in the future. Oh, that's great. No, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. And the the other thing I wanted to, to transition was, I want to transition into interviewing a bit. Let me explain a bit more on all that. Um, okay. A lot of people have been interviewing lately. There's many theories on what's the best framework for interviewing. We all know, you know, the secret to a UX interview requires you to be, to successfully, I should say, present four things about yourself, right? Skills. Do you have the necessary skills to perform the job? Research, design, coding, usability, whatever. Experience. Do you have the right experience, leadership, domain expertise to, you know, for the role that you're applying with? Likeability. How do you handle stressful situations? Fit. How do you fit into the current group? Are your cultural fit? You know, different companies look for different things. So those are all things that typically the researcher, whoever you're having a conversation with, is gonna, you know, start to ask. Then, you know, the one thing I was thought at least pretty solidly because I didn't do that before was talk to you in your interview, use self like I. I led a team. I created this project and co-led with XYZ. Those are all things that, you know, I always did. And I think they've always been very useful, you know, be myself, be lead with I, because as you all know, when you're in a company and you present, it's like, we, we did this, the team and I did this. It's never like I myself, but when you're in an interview, it's all about yourself. Even if you're a leader, it's like, I led the team to, increase NPS score by 20% or whatever. Like, I think it's, it's all about that part. But one thing that Mitch and I have been talking about and was, could there be a better way or a better framework? Framework is going to be used loosely here, but more of like a, a nice situational aspect that could help people get ahead of the games. Are there tips and tactics that could get them ahead of the game? And the reason we wanted to put this together is Mitch has been having some conversations lately and wanted to, to, to provide his perspective on it and see what he's been doing and how it's been going basically for that. Well, it's been going really well, but I think that it for a long time, I was thinking that just being authentically myself, we've discussed this in the past, being authentically myself isn't enough. I think that that's going to take you only so far. And so I was searching for a lot of different strategies, if you will, for how to best interview, how to best be the best candidate. So for a while, I I didn't really know how best to strategize these interviews because for me, I didn't have anyone teach me how to strategize or I really 
didn't trust other people's strategies online because I think that they're they're more kind of BS, to be honest. I've tried some in the past, and you know, I just don't think they work very well. And I think there's some things that can marginally improve your chances. What are the things that are going to improve your chances by the most? Have the highest impact on getting you to close on that deal with that with the interviewer or whoever is interviewing you, the hiring manager, the recruiter, or whatever. A friend of mine recommended me a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And it's a really good book. I don't think every single thing in the book actually applies, but I do think that it's enough to like get you somewhere that maybe you've been struggling to get to. Can you provide some examples? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I kind of look at the interview process from three phases, listening, positioning, and then negotiating, and each one leads to the next. Not that you wouldn't listen throughout the whole procedure, but you definitely want to listen the most in the beginning because you want to be able to cover your ground. You want to be able to really understand where everything sits on the other person's perspective, and then you can make your decisions. And that will actually help impact you positively later on. You know, you don't want to overstep in the wrong direction. So this book kind of gives you a lot of strategies, really good strategies that just that also don't just apply to interviewing, but also negotiating in anything, in, in relationships, in, in friendships, in, in business, in, in, in whatever. So a couple of the lessons that I w- I'm going to pull out have a lot to do with negotiations, but they apply significantly to interviewing. And this is what I've been using recently. And I think that they've actually been pretty, pretty successful. And I don't think that necessarily every single thing, if, if you miss one thing in here, or you miss a couple of these things, or you don't do it really well, you can't save the interview. Of course you can. You know, be authentically yourself for sure. It's just not always the the best thing that's going to take you the farthest. It can definitely save you in some cases, but I'm going to give you some skills right from this book that I've been using that I think have been working pretty well. So number one, the book kind of goes into one, one of these things called listening, but it's, it's, I guess some people call it active listening or whatever. It's, it sounds, I don't know, very like rudimentary, like everyone kind of already understood. Okay, listen, yeah, okay, they said this and whatever. But if you start by listening and you make it about the other person a little bit, they kind of, for one, love talking about themselves. They really love to explain their thought process because if you've shown interest in them, they're going to reflect that back to you. Of course, they're the one hiring you, so they're very interested in you. But if you're going to go in it listening to them, and listening to their problems, you're going to act more like a problem solver for them that they're looking for, right? So that's what they're kind of asking you to do. They're hiring you to fulfill a specific role, a specific task or set of tasks. And sometimes, and mostly, they'll ask you to kind of do this autonomously. So they don't really want to be over, you know, over your shoulder looking at you. They want to make sure you can do this yourself. But if you're asking the questions about them and getting personal with them, then listening to what they have to say, what they're kind of pain points are and we'll get into this in a little bit you know for example i'll give you i'll give you an example that'll help illustrate this like you know wow this is a really exciting role but why hasn't it been filled yet you know kind of listen to what they have to say about that kind of stuff or you know comment on something in in the room maybe something that like might be association like oh i can tell you're this kind of you're you're a plant, plant lover or something tell me more about that plant you have in the back and build that relationship by listening and to not just looking around the room but listening to what they actually do have to say 
listening to their body language, you know, paying attention, really listening really means paying attention. So they're going to say a lot of stuff. Sometimes their body language says, says something different. So listen to both of those things. But being able to listen and catch those little, those little like idiosyncrasies that might not be something you hear in other interviews can actually save you later on. And we'll go into those in a little bit in, in a minute because by listening, you actually can do something really cool called mirroring. So Pascal, have you heard of what mirroring is? Yes, but I'm going to let you explain it. <laughs> okay. So mirroring is great because it makes them feel like you're listening. Like, of course, you can listen and ask questions, but are you actually digesting information they're giving you that they think is really important? One way to do that and make them feel like you actually are and truly doing it yourself is by, in a sense, repeating it back to them, right? So one example of this might be if they're telling you, hey, this rule includes certain things, you're going to repeat that back to them. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 you get it. And you can paraphrase it a little bit so you don't have to repeat every single word because God forbid, you know, <laughs> you have to actually memorize what they're saying. Don't memorize what they're saying. But if you repeat back what they say, it actually helps them realize, okay, this person is listening to me. They're not just looking at me, staring at me and nodding their head. No one wants a yes person, right? And I think those are things that apply not just to that part, but to like a lot of the roles that you could be doing. Like even if you're leading people or having a conversation with a project manager, those are all things that could also help in that aspect as well. Yeah. It also could be used in a certain way where, where you're you're also facing the same problems. So not just saying what they're saying, but also feeling the same feeling so you know if, if you say something like you know so what did the other candidates have that you're or did not have that you're looking for and you know you can fill that void by saying you know funny you know i was facing the same problem when i was working for you know billy Bo over there so i totally get how you're feeling you know reflect what they're feeling what they're saying back to them and they'll feel more of a personal connection to you because you're saying that you're str- you're in the same boat as them essentially and they like that. They, it makes them feel comfortable, right? And everyone wants to feel comfortable when they're talking to somebody. You don't want to be very like, oh, yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah I, I get you. I get you. But, like, calm down. <laughs> First of all, calm down. But secondly, by acknowledging something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually listening. So by re- replying back and mirroring, you're actually repeating words that they said. As you say, it helps you memorize them a little bit, too. It actually helps you digest them more, too. So that's what I actually do a lot. I, I do it subconsciously, but it turns out it is something that people do feel a lot better when you do it. So mirroring, that's number two. Number three is kind of hard to explain, and I'm not very good at explaining this one, but tactical empathy. Empathy is definitely different than sympathy. I'm not going to explain what empathy and, and sympathy are, but you definitely have to sit down and get on that person's level. Right. So the last couple of examples and the last couple of points I was trying to make, you know, listening and, 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 you know, mirroring, those are strategies to get closer to empathizing with somebody because you can't empathize with somebody if you don't listen to them. You don't hear their perspective and you can't really empathize with them if you don't actually, if they don't actually feel that you're listening to them. So I guess mirroring would be the action of acknowledging you're listening and, and listening is, is the gateway in order to empathize. And so tactical empathy in this case, you know, it, you know, it brings attention to, to both the emotional obstacles and, you know, things like avenues in which you can kind of 
use to your advantage to, to get the role. So, you know, you got to realize from their perspective, how do they feel? And, you know, acknowledge that, that the hunt for, a, like, for example, for a candidate is actually difficult. Like, cause it is like, you have to go through so many interviews with somebody just to find one person that might fit the role. And then you hope that they actually do. And then and if they don't, then, you know, you're gonna be really upset with yourself and you're gonna go back and try to ask them, whatever. So it's also very costly. I think that's it's very a, costly. That's a, that's an issue why they take so much time to. It's high stakes. It's high stakes, especially like depending on the role and like the hierarchy level, it takes a long research time and it's very costly to bring new people in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By empathizing though, you can get again closer to that person. The yeah. whole goal is to build trust with this interviewer, right? And to prove that you're trustworthy, but also that you're the one for the job. And and it would match all the different things that you listed before, Pascal. But being able to build that empathy is essential. Because if you don't have empathy, you're actually in a really bad spot. If you don't have empathy with that interviewer or show some sort of empathy, they're going to think automatically the opposite, that you're treating them just like a number. Because in a sense, you kind of are, right? There's a bunch of people that you're probably interviewing with. You hope, hopefully you're not interviewing with just one company at a time. And like, that's, you know, that's kind of hard to do. At least on the person, it's easy for the company because they have the advantage. But, you know, if you were using empathy, it'll take you a lot farther even when you get the job. Like, you know, what happens when, you know, you have take off really quick right before, right when you get the job. It, some people will be really mad if you take off as soon as you get hired because you have to go to a wedding or whatever. But if you build the empathy, you can explain these things in a different manner and have a little bit more cushion for long term. It's a long term strategy game. You don't want to go in without empathy. So that's what I'll say about that. And point number four, you have to label their emotions. So a lot of these things that I've been kind of pulling out, they're all kind of stacking on each other, if, if you notice. They're, except the last one. The last one's a little bit different. But they all kind of tie together, and they are kind of related. And this one goes back to the emotion because, you know, a lot of people make decisions based on emotions. And you want to make sure that you have your emotions in line. Never go out of line with your emotions. Even if something goes wrong from, from your perspective, just keep your emotions in line and then be able to, you know, peacefully depart. But if you're really trying to... to to get this job, keeping your emotions in line is as important as keeping their emotions in line and listening to them. If you can label their emotions, then you give more satisfaction in them because then, again, it builds further empathy that you're understanding and listening. You see how all this stuff is starting to play out and kind of build on top of each other? So label their emotions like, you know, I bet it's frustrating. You keep, you know, uh, interviewing candidates but haven't found the right one. You know, that must be really time consuming. And then they're going to be like, oh my gosh, yeah, you totally get me. Like, yeah, I, it, it's been like months since we can find someone to replace, you know, uh, that last person who just, you know, totally blew us off. Like, you know, just now we're in a terrible position. It's like, oh, cool. I can now fill that void for you. I can help fit, you know, fit, fit that, that, that area where you don't have to have any more of that pain anymore, you know, from, from, from trying to look for somebody. So I think, if you label your emotions or label their emotions, they're they're more likely to have even further empathy with you. Yeah. You're able to build that relationship further yep. and then make you seem more likable, like you said. 
And the fifth kind of point doesn't actually relate <laughs> necessarily to all the others. It can be benefited by the others, other points, but it's, it's sometimes on its own. And it's this idea of the word no. And I love this. And I'll give you a story about this before I kind of dive into it in more description. So I was at this uh, store called Zara buying some clothing or returning it. I don't quite remember. I was in line. I was waiting at the cashier and somebody else next to me was at another cashier purchasing like a bunch of shirts. This guy, he had a really thick accent. He, 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 was, he was tall. You know, he had shirt buttoned up or buttoned down all the way. You know, you, know, you can see his like chest hair and stuff. And, you know, he, he looked like he was having a good time, right? Like he was like basically coming from the beach almost. But, you know, in the middle of Austin, Texas, it's not really a beach. Anyways, this guy, he was essentially, want, he, he really wanted to buy a bunch of hangers from the, the, the store, but they don't sell the hangers. He's like, how much for the hangers? And the cashier's like, oh, sorry, man. Sorry, sir. You know, we can't sell you those. He goes, how much? He goes, we can't sell them. And so she kept saying, no, and I can't give you this. And he actually went out of his way. He was just like, all right. How about I just buy 10 of these? Give me 10 of these, I'll buy all of them. And, he, and and she's like, no. And he's like, well, how about eight? She's like, no. Five? No. Three. Come on, let me buy three. 300 for three. $100 for each one. Three, please, come on. He persisted so much. She looked at him, looked at the other cashier, looked at me, and then she turned to him and said, all right, I'll give you these three for free. And they don't want to give out the hangers because these are very, like, I guess, nice hangers that they, they use in the store. And you know, she's like, mm-hmm. no, sir. Like, I have to, you know, rehang other clothing. You can't have these. But after, like, 15 minutes of him saying, you know, I'm not taking no for an answer, she was able to kind of be whittled down to, like, at least give him something, right? It wasn't the exact number he wanted. Maybe he didn't want the, that number. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that in a little bit because I know I have some other tips as well. And that, that, that we call ballparking. But no is a gateway to to yes and you just have to figure out how to reword it and reframe the whole situation so if somebody says no it's not no end of discussion it's not yet you haven't presented to me something that's so valuable that i'm willing to get off this word no yeah it basically means there's a better yes somewhere exactly there's a better yes somewhere else and you have to find that right so i mentioned something else in there called ballparking and do you, do you want to explain what this is when you turn like in terms of negotiation like salary yeah 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 i think a lot of people approach this part differently like i i tend to tend to ask for the entire package kind of explain that kind of been talking to people i i know the okay, salary well, let's, range. let's let's top let's time out right let's start that one over so so like would you be able to explain what ballparking means and then kind of go into your strategy about it i would well for me ballparking is is providing and i may be wrong because i maybe have, don't have the same one you're thinking of but ballparking for me is providing a range of numbers within you know in within the industry norms that's basically for me those that's what i consider ballparking and then i you can explain. Yeah, yeah. It's, it. it's, it's kind of like you can Ballparking is that you give a kind of like an area in which you're not being so specific. 
Yeah. But in this case, I'm kind of I'm kind of using it as a way to like highball the 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 number that they might be giving you. So if they ask you well, what's your number, if you ever are in a position where you can't ask them to give you a number first, then you would kind of start at the highest number you possibly could and work your way down to the number you actually want. So you kind yeah, of but, but wouldn't that be then how would you know what the highest number is? You don't. That's the problem. But the 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 good part about it is you are trying to get them to a number you really want. You take you start with your number and then you go higher than your number. They go, that's outrageous. How about this? And then their response to you is that they're going to give you a lower number than you said. That's actually the number you really want. So if you yeah. just say you want like a hundred thousand dollars and you say, I want like a hundred and forty thousand dollar salary, they go, No, we can't do that now for that level. How about a hundred and ten? You've already beat your number, right? So whenever they say no, then you can go in and say, okay, how about a little bit more? So that's what I did for a couple of other roles, and it worked out pretty well. Uh, so you can kind of give a ballpark range too. And, and I know you have a strategy for this specifically, and I, I really like your strategy too because you're not saying – I'll let you go into it, but you know, you're not saying necessarily here's the number. You're, you're, you're coming with evidence. You're coming with data. Yeah, I I usually because I used to really lowball and I used to got I got caught a couple of times like going too low, but I guess for me it's it's more about coming at it with you know I've I know what the industry numbers are I've had conversations with others I know my fair value in the market I'd love to see the package before I'm able to provide some numbers and and then they tend what I've been lucky with so far they tend to kind of give you you know, level seniority X is between X and X. Based on your salary, you'd kind of be positioned within this area. And those are the kind of what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. not, I haven't always succeeded doing that, though, I have to say. Like, in some situations, I got lowballed. This situation, I got, I got okay. But I've, it, it's, it's, it's a senior leader that's told me that when, at one point where if you force them to kind of give you the number you kind of tell them you know your value in the industry they're going to come at it and, and and provide you their range rather than you giving them their range so i've applied it in numerous times and maybe it's time to revisit but it's it's what i've been <laughs> doing it's it's been working so yeah i think that it, it also changes over time and and also for each person individually each situation can be different. Like, they, you know, sometimes you're not prepared for what they're going to ask you. But, you know, this kind of goes back to the whole listening, negotiating, and that, right, and that, oh, actually, excuse me, listening, positioning, and then negotiating. So that's kind of how all interviews work. You kind of introduce yourself, yeah. you go through like a process of like providing your value and if they like you, right? So that's like, that's like the positioning phase. And then you kind of negotiate the end of like, what value you're going to get back in return. So those are the points from the book. There's actually many more. I highly recommend checking it out. Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And I think it's something that people can, you know, prototype and test. Yeah. Because like it, it, practice makes perfect. You know, it's, it's that thing that we don't tend to practice enough of. Yeah. One thing I wanted to wrap those points up with that I kind of 
skipped over a little bit in the beginning. The very first one I was kind of saying was listen. One thing that's really important when you are listening, and this applies to everything, you have to really understand the other person's worldview. And that will end up also changing how you ballpark or how you kind of go into the negotiation phase with the salaries and the, val- and the value in return, you know, the whole equity package or whatever it's called. You have to understand, and I think this might be the most important lesson of all, you have to understand are, how emotional or logical is this person. You know, there's like three types of people. A previous manager of, of, of mine, maybe we can get on the podcast soon, who, who kind of taught me how to like read people to better work with them. He said, you know, there's there's people who are very logical, emotional, and then kind of a mixture of both. But oftentimes you're going to run into the people who are more logical or emotional on one side or the other. And when you understand how somebody reacts to things and thinks and digests information first, either emotionally or logically, you can better position your answer for them. So they ask you a question. If you answer a, a, a logical person with emotions, they're not going to receive it well. They're not going to really accept that answer very well. They're going to kind of reject that. So if somebody is, for example, I'll give you a life example that I've worked with somebody in the past who was a very logical thinker. And in this particular case, I had to present an argument to implement a design that he did not want. And the only way I can do it is by providing the reasoning why this would be more successful than his potential solution. And in that case, the reasoning that I had actually encompassed what he was saying. So it ended working out for me where the solution was taken and then implemented across the company. But it's kind of hard to talk about it in, in, in abstract form. But if you're talking about something who something that's more emotional and somebody's asking you to respond, you have to respond emotionally, not like, oh my God, well, but like you have to you have to get into their emotions and understand like with the empathy, like, yeah, no, I, I get you're totally frustrated with that. And that was totally, you know, terrible of them. And, and maybe like what, what this person's saying to you is wrong, but what you have to say back to them is that you neutrally empathize with them. Maybe you don't agree or disagree. Maybe you agree or disagree, but you can say, Oh, I see how frustrating or painful that was for you that you didn't get that, that salary. Or I know it's uh, upsetting that, you know, your idea was turned down even though you worked for all night on it, right? You know, better luck next time. But maybe in a, in a better sense, you can say, you know, let's work together on a better solution that will actually improve both parties, you know? So you, you have to understand where they're coming from to then know how to communicate back to them and respond to them. And I think that applies for everything. Yeah, interesting. Another thing I'd since we're on this topic, is like the takeaway exams or the whiteboard sessions. I'm I'm very emotional about those. (laughs) I'm personally not a fan of Mm. that solve the world. Design exercises, right? Well, some, I don't mind the takeaway exam at home because you got time to think. And it respects everybody's pace and everybody's personality and style. The solve, solve the world in two minutes on a whiteboard, I know a lot of people freeze at those situations. And some people who are excellent at what they do are not going to be portrayed as good 
in that that type of exercise. And it takes away from that. I don't think, mm-hmm. my personal opinion is I don't think it's an inclusive design exercise. Many are going to argue it just shows the way you think, or, you know, how you articulate a problem, how I, I totally understand that aspect of it. I'm just thinking that I've worked with a lot of people that don't behave nicely when, you know, they're put into this stressful situation for 30 seconds, but they're excellent if they have time to go at their desk and think about it and come back and they're going to have an excellent solution. So I think it it forces everybody to get into like this fit model of everybody has to fit within our our realm and not be respectful of. So that's like for the whiteboard. Takeaway exam, it's okay. I'd prefer if they're paid in all opinion because at the end of the day, they're going to get free, many, many free exercise at home and they didn't pay for it. So I yeah. like, I think that's my two cents. You? Okay. I have a lot of opinions about this and I think I'll start with number one. I, you know what these like design exercises sound like? They, they sound a lot like to me, like, you know, when I say jump, you jump <laughs> or what is it? Like when I say jump, you say how high, right? I don't like that. It kind of begins to put you in a, in a, in a mindset of like, you're obedient to that kind of person or company. Of course you have to be respectful and you have to do what they say because they're paying you, but only to a certain degree. And you're not actually working for them yet. You know, you're testing the waters. I think some people will get like upset and they go, well, you know, this is like just the real world and, and you have to do things you don't like and you don't want to do. And and I think that's fine. But this time that I'm spending on an exercise, a take home exercise or in person or a whiteboard session virtually, whatever they are, I'm giving my knowledge to somebody and I don't know what they're going to do with it. If they do like one of those like imaginary ones, like what uh, Shopify or, or or Stripe or I don't know if Stripe does it, but I know Facebook does it, right? Um, Shopify is a really, not Shopify, was it? Yeah, Shopify was a really good example because they they have one that's not necessarily about work that they do. It's, I think the exercise is you know, create a clock with like one button and you have to have all these different functions with the one button. And it's cool. Like, I think it's fine. That's like a fun thing to talk about. And, you know, whatever you see the way you think. I I don't really know how much you can get out of that because you can say, okay, this is how somebody thinks, right? But how somebody thinks, in my opinion, is better sought out over time. And you can have, like eureka moments over time not necessarily in the you can't always force that eureka moment and maybe your idea sucks today right maybe you need time to think about it maybe you need to experiment and and, and you're not good at like just talking and whiteboarding about it maybe you want to build something and test it out i don't think the same mode of interaction communicating about the the exercise actually informs the other person about how smart you are Exactly. I think it actually like, inhibits it. That's that's the point. I feel like some are going to behave excessively well on that exercise. Others are going to look like they don't know what they're doing and they can't think because mm-hmm. they're forced to think. Then they like their brain doesn't compute in that way. So I think they're they're limiting themselves. They're limiting the the types of candidates they can get by forcing them well, to fail. I don't know. 
I'm, so, I'm not on the receiving end on that. So I don't know if it's a fail or pass or it's just like part of the total package to see. But I still think it, it's not the best way to evaluate a lot of this. But you know what a better way to evaluate is, is to actually have somebody work for you for a certain period of time in like maybe like some sort of contract role instead of full-time. Like maybe every full-time role for like a design job is like, all right, we'll hire you for three months. If it all goes well, you know, then, you know, you'll get the rest of the stuff. If not, you know, then you would just work for us for the three months and then you can leave if you want. If you didn't like it, you can look for a new job. We'll give you like another month stipend or, or you know, salary just so that you can, you know, look for your next job. Um, but I think that might be more appropriate, even though it's more time consuming. It's literally times three months. You get a couple of benefits out of that, you know, like number one, you get to actually see the culture and see if you really are a fit you know sometimes the work is fine but like the people that you're working with are not so you don't know that until you actually have to work with them and you see the problems there right so that's number one it's also like it kind of you know when you're doing that interview you're also interviewing them as much as they are you and it should also be like the the same thing when you're starting you should be testing out the waters as much as they are testing you i think it I, i i like that approach it's just it should be a two-way thing and it should be understood mm-hmm. from the start that we're both testing the waters here. Yeah. And if you don't have the portfolio to prove that you can do this stuff and they're kind of unsure, that's already kind of maybe a red flag, right? Sometimes, you know, you sacrifice talent, like skill talent for like conviction. If you are really convict, you have like strong conviction about like, you really want to work this company, you'll do anything you can, you'll, you know, you, whatever, whatever, whatever. And you express that. Sometimes they'll put that over having a great composite of skills because you can build those over time, maybe not as fast as they like, but you probably could and they can probably help you out with that. So I think that sometimes you, it's up to that company to decide what are they looking for, what stage, because if they can grow the designer, they can grow the person, or they want the person already grown up and then like you know, potty trained and then they can like, <laughs> they can then use them to what what they're they're aiming for. So it, it all depends on really what the company is looking for and what you're looking for too, right? If you're a designer and you, you want a specific kind of role, projects, company, resume piece, whatever, portfolio piece, whatever it is, you know, you have to take these into consideration. There's no right or wrong answer, but it's what are you going to put into it and get out of it. And you have to know this. You have to figure this out. This is not something that you can just keep passively doing over time. Otherwise, you're just going to rot away and just keep doing, you know, work for people that you may not actually like. If you start targeting things better, if you start thinking about the future and start planning these, you know, strategically, just like one of our other episodes about, you know, where do you start as a designer, right? We talked about agency, we talked about startup, we talked about enterprise. We actually didn't talk about freelance, but I think that if you're not even thinking about a strategy that, to, to take, I think winging it is actually worse than than going to one of those roles and, and not liking it. Because if you're winging it, you have less of a chance of knowing what you're getting yourself into. If you're strategic about it, you can plan things long term. Like, okay, now that we worked at these really big companies, Pascal, you and I have these things on our resume, right? That was a strategic thing that I thought on my part, I don't know if you did, but knowing this being on my resume, it helps. It really does. Having like a big tech company in your resume is really cool. It's really, it's really useful for recruiting and stuff because people 
come out of IBM. They're extremely talented and they go all, all sorts of companies, Google, Facebook, Apple, whatever. But, and they even start their own things. But if you're just not thinking about this and you're aimlessly wandering the earth, you know, maybe, maybe that's how you prefer to live. I, I'm not going to tell you how to live, but for me, I want to get to a certain point and every step closer to that, I'm purposefully putting in front of me. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great way to look at it because, right, there's no right or wrong if you're going from startup, enterprise, or agency. But if you plan accordingly, you, those moves can be very successful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, like, you, you, and you can go from enterprise back to agency, and that's okay. But that next agency won't, will no longer be the smaller agency. It, it's going to be like huge frog or like the, some of the big names up there because you've gained so much experience from the enterprise world. So when you go into the startup world or agency world, or vice position in the same way. So it's, it's always strategically positioning the next move and so on. And it's okay to move laterally for a couple and like, there's no right or wrong, but I think having it in that mindset where you're thinking about the future state of things is very important. Mm -hmm. Oh Yeah. So that kind of concludes the topics of, of today. Do you want to go into our product review of the week? Yeah, I kind of gave my opinion last time on it. And I'd love to, to get yours on this topic. So actually, I don't think we announced yet what the project is that we're going to be launching on, on the, the contest. But no, that's true. Maybe, maybe we'll get into that online. So you guys can can tune in and follow us to, to find out more details about that. But the product review of the week is, drumroll, Zoom. Zoom, Google, Meet, and Detail, and all those kind of tools that helps you kind of use cameras to create things, recordings or whatever. whatever. I kind of bundled them all together because I kind of feel like they're all the same. They, and I think you said in the past that you have a problem with each one of these things, but let's start with like Zoom and just talk about the Zoom and like all the good things and bad things about Zoom. I think all products have pros and cons. It's more of like when you require a specific use case for it, like one thing's going to bug you. Like another software, one thing's going to bug you. And I know with Zoom, one thing that you had pointed out I didn't even notice was like the quality when you record and how it saves, like it doesn't save it necessarily the assumed area where you thought it would be where you didn't have to click on settings or so i think there's like that's the thing that bugged us with that part right and i you know i could argue that another thing is why make that 45 minute free in like not an hour like there's all these like these little i understand they want to get to the paid version but like talk about that part where you know when you record quality thing where you assumed it was going to the right place kind of caught us in the behind so so for those who don't know pascal pascal is referring to one of our other episodes where i describe my issue with zoom trying to set the camera quality to hd on the desktop app but if you save it to the cloud you have to go to the website and also click hd there there's no indication of that like, and that's something you learn by doing well yeah, that is something you learn by doing. Practice makes perfect. And, you know, I think we've gotten the quality pretty good. But, you know, it's frustrating because Zoom doesn't care enough about the customer. Maybe they do. Like, you know, I talked about the customer support situation that I had with Zoom. 
maybe they do care, like they do truly care. They are made up of people, but it doesn't feel like they care. And that's what I think matters a lot because you can tell people you care so much, but if you don't actually put that to action and, and, and make the, the, take the necessary steps to, to care, then you clearly are just speaking and not, you know, you're, you're talking to talk, not walking the walk. You have to be able to provide that support, to provide that help if you, if you, you know, mess up or apologize at the very least. But Zoom didn't even improve over the pandemic. Like it just never got good. It stayed crappy. Let's say I'll, I'll play the, I played devil's advocate with this one on like on the last time we, we chatted about this company and I've never worked there. So I'm just, I'm just saying, could it be that they've grown so much and they tried to cater to everybody's needs? Right. If you think of when it started, it was an awesome product, super easy to use, super like it was a small, nimble thing because it was the one of the well, the most fun one to use at that point. And beginning like 2020, when everybody started work from home a lot, everything just exploded. And like they started adding new features over features over features over features. Like what? Could, I, I don't know. I, well, exactly. Look like, on the web. No, but if you look the, on the no, website, but, but what, I'm, like, what, I, what I'm saying is that it doesn't feel like they added anything. I like, know, but if you look it, at the website, it feels like they added a ton. No, it doesn't. <laughs> if you could, if you can name me a feature that they added that that is like substantial, then yeah. Okay, but so I can't think they, of one. That's what I the wanted problem, to say. Right? Is, like, the way they <laughs> frame the website, it makes it feel like they're trying to cater to everybody that needs to record something online. Should they have focused to strictly meeting? And then, you know what I mean? That, that's where I was getting to is maybe they tried to focus too large, which then when that happens, it's like you're not good at one thing. You're trying to be good at everything, which kind of reflects the opposite. I'm not. I'm not just saying like they cared too much. Maybe I, I'm not. Ba- well, I'm not bashing the company. I'm just saying maybe they tried I'm bashing to expand. the company. <laughs> maybe, maybe they tried to expand too much. And that could be a reason for it. And. I'm not an okay. Under, you know, fair, fair. That could be a reason, but to be frank, I don't care because there's a million other products out there that are better. I get it, and, totally and get it. if 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 they don't want to get better, that's fine. That's on them. But you know, unfortunately, they have like almost almost a monopoly on on like mm-hmm. the the industry, like business, like you know, video yeah. chat. But you know, Microsoft Teams came out of nowhere, right? So they've been eating a lot of the market. And you know, whatever happened to Skype, right? Poor Skype. But you I, know, I, I, I just for, have to I say forgot about that one. <laughs> oh my God. There there was like Uvu, right? That was another yeah, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. All these crazy, you know, experiments of the past. Yeah. And Skype's still around. I don't know why they haven't like been promoting it a lot. But you know, it's to me it's just sad to watch a product that had a lot of potential mm-hmm. fall flat. I know. And whatever the reason is, I'm sure there is a logical reason why they haven't improved. They simply didn't. And I think a cop-out for improving is by opening up your product to a marketplace to like add other apps and features that you can't figure out how to add. I think it's, in some cases, a really good thing because you have innovation. But if there's like basic things, like I know Webflow was experiencing this recently where those who don't know, Webflow is a tool that lets you build a website similar to Framer, but honestly not as nice. So kind of have to learn a little bit of HTML, CSS, and kind of keep that in mind when you're building it. But it's still kind of a visual builder, so anyone who doesn't know how to code can still build a website. It's still a pretty good tool. Highly recommend you check it out. Where's our sponsor, Webflow? But Webflow, maybe they won't sponsor us. 
they're not going to sponsor us after I say this. There's like a feature where you have to like, I guess, re- reorder things, like reorder a data, like a list of things. And you have to install a, an app to allow you to drag and drop to reorder a list. And that like really irks me. Like if a product can't build basic functionality, then they rely on a marketplace to do that. A couple things happen, but we'll get into that Figma in another episode. Yeah, Figma does it too. It, um, it's all these platforms you, do it. You always have to go to the community to figure out, like, even if you want to copy and paste from Figma to Framer, mm-hmm. you need the plugin to do it, and then and then you copy it. I want to talk about platforms in another episode because I think that that is like a huge issue, right? Being like the marketplace and like the 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 void of like features that should exist but don't. But we'll leave that for for another time. So why don't you start start up this this rapid fire so we can wrap up the uh, the pod. Rapid fire. Those are always your favorite, right? No, they're my least favorite. <laughs> All right. You ready? Sure. <laughs> I'm like literally like not, I, I don't even want to do these rapid fire. Okay, go, go. Okay. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Really? Why? <laughs> of course. Okay. What's in your last Google search? My my Google my Google search is kind of off. Like oh, the history is off true. because, yeah. Cause, You're smart. Well, we had to do that at some point. <laughs> okay. It, 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 it makes it more private, so. Okay. What was your worst subject in school? My worst subject? Yeah. Uh, reading. I can barely read. I have like a fifth grade reading level. Really? Absolutely. I think that's it has you to paint, be like. That's why you paint by numbers? <laughs> that's why I can only count to seven. <laughs> no, it's because I, I think I have like a dyslexia of some sort where I can I can't read like a full paragraph without like mixing up the words, the letters in between, whatever. I don't know. I just it slows me down. I'm like, oh my god. So I just hate reading. So I just stopped getting good at it and just did other things to, to compensate. That's okay. Summer <laughs> or winter? Oh, summer. You're from Florida. Well, why would you? Why would you want your car to get stuck in snow? Like <laughs> what? purpose does that serve it's nice to look at snow's nice but i'd rather be on a beach in my bathing suit for me it's like i'm not in the same place as you (laughs) talking a beach if you could live anywhere in the world where would it be i haven't explored the world enough to know where to live but it has to be with a beach or or a lake or some sort of like body of water favorite hobby can't say design because also work right i think part of problem last year was that i couldn't figure out what to do as a hobby and my hobby was just doing more work. So I think this year I want to kind of spread a little bit out of digital stuff yeah. and do more hardware stuff. That's something I'm really interested in doing, building like hardware and like experimenting. Very cool. But okay. if I did have to say, actually, you know what? I do have a hobby. It's training my dog, doing like a, lot, a lot of dog tricks with him. I cool. do like some serious dog training with him. Hopefully I can like enter him into like a competition. We'll, we'll create an Instagram for him. <laughs> he already has one. Of course he does. Okay, best fashion advice you've ever received. That's such a weird one. I know, but I had to ask. My sister says she doesn't like it when I wear more than three, like more than two colors. So if I wear three colors, she she gets mad at me. Like you know, take off one of the colors, one of the colors because it's just too much. Like if I have like a like a brown jacket with like a black shirt and white pants, she'll, she'll freak out or something like that. Okay, what's your nickname? Do you have a nickname? Yeah, do you have one? Mitch. That's a boring nickname. Well, that's my nickname, so take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last one. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you as, as a designer? 
Oh, I thought the question was on a scale of one to 10, period. <laughs> I was like, eight? Fantastic. Scale of one to 10, how good am I as a, like, to rate myself? Yeah. Well, I can't give myself a perfect score because I don't think that means that means that I wouldn't have anything to improve. So I would say definitely exactly. like like an eight. That's what I wanted you to say because nobody can be a 10. That means they, they don't have nothing to learn. I think that, you know, if anyone says 10, they've, they need to set a new scale because yeah, they maybe reached their metric of success. That's fine. I haven't reached mine yet and I know what it kind of looks like, but, you know, I think that if you can't articulate it, you definitely can't figure out how to measure it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't measure it, you can't define if you're going to be successful or not. So, yeah. Metrics is a good way to frame it. Hell yeah. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for another fun episode. Woo! I'll see you in the next one. Awesome. Thanks, man.